Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Dr. Kevin Waite on the show. Dr. Waite is an associate professor at Durham University and a political historian of the 19th century United States with a focus on slavery, imperialism, and the American West. His first book, which is the subject of our conversation, West of Slavery, The Southern Dream of a Transcontinental Empire, is a study of slaveholding expansion in California and the far southwest. It explores how American Southerners extended their labor order and political vision across the continent and in the process triggered a series of conflicts that culminated in the Civil War. West of Slavery won the 2022 Wiley Silver Prize from the Center for Civil War Research and was a finalist for the Lincoln Prize as well. It was named one of the 11 books that shaped how we think about California by Boom, a journal of California and one of the five best books ever written on the Civil War in the American Far West by the Civil War Monitor. Please enjoy our conversation. Dr. Waite, um, I want to start by talking about kind of the historiography of uh, California, uh, the Civil War, and slavery. Um, I think it's a good place to start just to kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about uh, throughout this conversation. Um, so, Let's first talk about how California and slavery has generally been discussed in the scholarly discourse, and how does the thesis of your new book, uh, The West of Slavery, uh, diverge from that? Yeah, there's there's a lot there. So I would say traditionally, or the standard narrative of the Civil War hasn't really left a whole lot of room for California and the West. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the conflict over slavery is fought between the Northeast and the Southeast slave states. Um, you know, if you read the major um, uh, survey works on the subject, books like Battle Cry of Freedom by James McPherson, books by David Potter, uh, William Freeling, all great books that I reference and teach regularly. Um, the, the West usually enters the picture as an abstraction. Uh, rather than a, a real place where real people fought over the issue of slavery. Um, and it's probably no coincidence that a lot of these, you know, really big, important books were written by Easterners um, on a subject that was once thought of as, you know, fundamentally an Eastern conflict. Um, <clears throat> more recently, though, there's... Um, there's a greater tendency to see California and the West as a political player in and of itself, um, and really a breeding ground for all different sorts of slavery. So I'm thinking of really good books by Stacey Smith and Leonard Richards and Andres Resendez and Billy Kaiser, um, who all argue, um, you know, slavery, whether African-American chattel slavery or various forms of indigenous servitude, um, in fact, you know, took root in the West. Um, and uh, the, the presence of slavery in California and other parts of the Southwest had this really profound implication for the political makeup of the states and territories of the region. Um, so my book really belongs to that turn in the historiography. Um, I'm, I'm deeply indebted to all these scholars and what they've unearthed about slavery in the West. Um, and my book, West of Slavery, is in part a, an attempt to marry this body of literature with um, the literature on the slave South and slaveholding expansion. Yeah, um, and I feel just looking at content standards, 
uh, coming from uh, the K-12 world off, you know, which is what most adults uh, have as, you know, some of their last history classes. Uh, really, California has just talked about in terms of the compromise of 1850. That is kind of the last episode of California's involvement in the Civil War, uh, at least in the, the topics that we cover. But uh, your book and the other research that you mentioned um, points to a, a bigger story there. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually Californian myself and, you know, spent my formative years in California schools uh, and, <clears throat> you know, slavery and the civil war, and as far as I recall, never really came into the conversation. Um, it's not because I didn't have great teachers. I definitely did. Um, it just, this history wasn't on anybody's radar. I mean, we learned about the civil war as a separate unit um, and it's about the East. It's about something that happened over there. Um, but you're right. Yeah, the Compromise of 50 comes down and that's the end of the West in this big national narrative over slavery and, and what became the Civil War. So let's talk about uh, some of the key figures in the pro-slavery camp in California. Uh, who were they and uh, what impact did they have on California politics? Um, so the <clears throat> you could sort of say the main character of the book is a guy named William Gwynn. Um, He's sort of like the, the Forrest Gump of Western slaveholders. I mean, everywhere you look in California in the 1850s, William wins there. Um, so he was a, a Mississippi planter with vast tracts of land uh, around Natchez, Mississippi and several hundred uh, enslaved laborers under his control, uh, all the while he represented California in the US Senate. Um, uh, and Gwynn, you know, didn't argue for the literal reintroduction of slavery into California. I mean, he was he was shrewder politically than that. Um, but what he did instead was build this really big and nimble political machine in California, uh, filled with a whole bunch of white Southerners who owed their allegiance to the plantation South and who voted with the South on most major issues. Um, and he he basically installed all these white Southerners in the really lucrative patronage positions in the state. Um, it was said that the uh, Customs House in San Francisco was so full of these white Southerners on big fat federal contracts that they called it the Virginia Poor House. Um, and so through this political machine, Gwynn and his allies were able to sort of pull the strings of politics in California. I mean, white Southerners only amounted to about 33% of the state's population at, at their absolute high point. Um, but they won in election after election after election. And, and a lot of that has to do uh, with William Gwynn and sort of the world he built around him. This part of the story um, is not told as much in part because I think California has such a complicated legacy of uh, different exclusions. Um, and, you know, we tend to talk in the history of California more about uh, Asian exclusion legislation, uh, but not the presence uh, of pro-slavery movements. Um, is that just a, a, a kind of a footnote or is it something that should be expanded when we talk about the history of California? I think it's something that should be expanded and something that could be actually integrated into <clears throat> the history of, say, uh, Chinese exclusion during the era. I mean, it's no coincidence that these two things are happening, you know, close in time to one another. 
um, efforts to enslave African-Americans, to enslave Native Americans. I mean, there was an effort to just keep black migrants from the state full stop that very nearly passed. Um, and then the later efforts in the 1870s and 1880s to sort of violently drive out Chinese immigrants, um, these all originated from a similar impulse, this impulse to protect sort of free white laborers um, and to keep whites on top of the sort of carefully constructed political hierarchy in the state. And why do you think the uh, West was so receptive to uh, the idea of the expansion of slavery? And was it just within certain demographic groups, uh, particularly people from that part of the world, or was there a concerted movement uh, to try to bring slavery to California across demographic mm. groups? Yeah, there, there was no, there was certainly no monopoly on white supremacy in California amongst its white, white population. Um, and you actually see uh, white northerners holding large numbers of bound indigenous laborers. Um, so it wasn't just the southerners in the state who exploited unfree labor, um, but it was the southerners who really advocated for African-American chattel slavery. Um, some of them tried to reintroduce it to the state. I mean, they, they brought in an estimated 500 to 1500 black slave laborers um, during the gold rush. And a number of them continued to import uh, enslaved African-Americans even after California became nominally a free state. Um, so these were definitely the guys behind efforts to entrench African-American slavery in the state, <clears throat> but they had pretty good company across the, uh, or amongst the white populace in the state, um, among people who really wanted to see uh, white supremacy upheld any way they could. And this kind of contrasts with the general picture we get of California as a new place, a new world, um, something where there's freedom and opportunity. Um, but, you know, un un underneath that, we have the importation of the same system uh, arriving in California. And that seems to seems to kind of contradict this uh, vision that we have of California. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it definitely turns this image of sort of free, progressive, enlightened California on its head. Um, you, you really don't have to scratch that far beneath the state's recent history to find really a, a really dark legacy of exclusion and racism and slavery. Um, but on the other hand, it, it's sort of of a piece with California's frontier heritage because as more people came together, I mean, the gold rush created probably the most cosmopolitan place anywhere in the United States in the late 1840s and the early 1850s. But with that ethnic mixing, you also saw a really aggressive attempt to, 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 to install a racial hierarchy. Um, and that doesn't mean that everybody supported slavery in the state. Um, a minority supported slavery, I would say. Um, but I would, I would probably also say that a majority of white migrants to the state really had a vested interest in keeping themselves at the top of that racial hierarchy. And how did the people, the Southern leaders in the pro-slavery camp, how did they view California? Did they see it as an opportunity? Did they see it as something uh, too complicated to try and expand into? What was, what was the vision coming from the Southwest, South to the West? Yeah, so the, the conventional view that we talked about a little bit earlier about the Compromise of 1850 sort of ending the Southern interest and in expansion into the West, um, 
I mean, it's 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 easy to think that way when you read like the final Senate speech of John C. Calhoun basically said, once California comes in as a free state, we're doomed. This is the end of the expansion of slavery as we know it. But then as soon as the Southerners had time to cool off, they realized that even if California never had a really robust agricultural system, chattel slavery, it could still align itself with the South on all sorts of major political issues. So through the 1850s, you actually get Southern, you get California congressmen voting with um, the the representatives and senators from the Deep South. Um, So they saw California as a political ally for sure. um, And they saw it as a place to continue to sort of invest political capital. I see. Well, let's let's jump to talking about the Civil War and maybe let's set some context before we get into it. Um, uh, simply just, uh, you know, what what role did California serve in the Civil War? Um, as I think uh, similar to the Mexican-American War, you have, you know, kind of the center of the fighting uh, happening uh, kind of, you know, in, in, along the, the Texas border with uh, Mexico and then in, into Mexico. And then you have these kind of small skirmishes going on in California that are part of the conflict, but are kind of tertiary to the main events. Um, so can you just give us a little context uh, about uh, the role California served in the war? Yeah, and I think that that's a good comparison to the U.S.-Mexico war. Um, California, as a lot of your listeners will probably know, remained loyal to the Union during the war. You know, it was nominally a free state before, and <clears throat> it did supply the Union war effort with thousands and thousands of troops. Um, but in parts of the state, that unionism was was compelled, and it was compelled at gunpoint. Um, so the northern part, the more populous northern part of California was, I would say, pretty strongly pro-union. The southern part of the state, not so much. So actually, in a lot of ways, the political fault line in California mirrors the fault line of the nation at large. You know, a, a more populous, more anti-slavery northern part uh, and a less populous, more pro-slavery pro- southern part. Um, and Los Angeles itself was really the you know hotbed of this Confederate activity in California. Um, hundreds of Angelinos actually fled the state over the course of the war to enlist directly in uh, Confederate armies. LA supplied the only uh, militia from a free state that fought under a Confederate banner during the war. What, um, what do you attribute that line to? Um, is it uh, the kind of is it do you attribute it to the kind of more urbanization and uh, diverse mixing of the north relative to the kind of more rural rancho style south? It has a lot to do with geography and overland trails. So the main overland trail that took Southerners to California to the gold fields went through Los Angeles. So first through Los Angeles and then north. And so a lot of them either just stopped there or a lot of them returned there. So in LA, the white population of LA uh, was actually majority Southern born. Um, That's interesting because I don't think, I mean, you know, politics are different now, but I'm I'm trying to see parallels and it's a it's an interesting thought experiment to think about uh, dividing California in that way. Um, so uh, were there m- many major conflicts that happened in California or was California like we talked about in the Mexican-American War kind of just tangential to, to violence that happened during the Civil War? 
Yeah, it wasn't a major military theater. Um, it was a source of some concern for U.S. authorities um, because they realized that unionism there was in parts of the state pretty tenuous. Um, so they formed a new military department that was headquartered in Los Angeles during the war to basically attempt to suppress rebellion in Los Angeles. Um, and they uh, they built a, a, a military garrison known as Drum Barracks just outside of LA. Um, so it didn't witness, you know, any major battles, definitely not. Um, it made it witness some brawls between Confederate supporters and unionists. Um, and it witnessed a couple of uh, sort of renegade operations by Confederates. So there was this uh, raid in gold country by a Confederate partisan ranger and his band. Uh, there was an attempted piracy expedition launched out of San, San Francisco Harbor. Both of those you know, were suppressed. Um, and actually a lot of these Confederate supporters were thrown into Alcatraz. Um, that's really how Alcatraz gets its start as a prison complex. Um, and it houses or it imprisons Confederate sympathizers during the war. That's fascinating. And what was um, what was Lincoln's relationship with California during the Civil War? Uh, how did he conceptualize its role? So Lincoln uh, actually carried California by the narrowest margin of votes of any free state. Um, <clears throat> he 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 won by just a couple hundred votes out of, you know, tens of thousands cast in the state. Um, and, you know, he only won there because the Democrats split their political ticket. Um, Lincoln himself called this the closest political bookkeeping that I know of. Um, but once he was in the White House, Lincoln basically swept from office all of William Wynn's Southern friends in patronage positions in California, and he replaced them with loyalists. And this was really important because up to that moment, white Southerners had sort of commanded these positions. Um, actually, Lincoln's patronage appointments amounted to the biggest political purge in US history up to that point. And they were really crucial in securing the loyalty of the West. Um, if he didn't have, you know, trustworthy people in these important positions, it's hard to see him maintaining firm control over the region. Um, during the war itself, Lincoln, <clears throat> you know, like most major um, commanders in the East, was preoccupied with major battles in that part of the country. Um, so he probably didn't spend too much time thinking about California on a day-to-day -day basis. But apparently on what, what would be his... Uh, his very last day, he spoke about the West and wanting to go to California. Um, once, once the fighting was done, he thought that this would be a nice place to visit. Everyone wants to come to California. Um, to so what, are, what were the uh, results or outcomes for uh, uh, Confederate sympathizers in California after the war? Did, they, did most of them uh, leave the state to go to more sympathetic places in the United States, or did they retain... Uh, and what happened to uh, the slaves that were uh, imported to California? Mm. So a lot of the Confederate supporters that left California during the Civil War simply stayed in the South. Um, the most famous guy is someone named Joseph Lancaster Brent, 
who uh, rose to command, I think, a cavalry unit as a brigadier general, Confederate Army. Um, <clears throat> he stayed put and didn't come back to Los Angeles because he was just sort of worried about his reception in L.A. after the war. Um, turns out he didn't need to worry that much. I mean, L.A. actually elected a Confederate officer as mayor in 1882. Um, and apparently unionists in L.A. had a much harder time than Confederates um, during the post-war period. Um, the question about enslaved people in California is really interesting. I mean, my next project is about a woman named Biddy Mason who was brought into California as, uh, as a slave in 1851. Uh, and she was worked in the Mormon agricultural colony of San Bernardino. Uh, and she didn't win her freedom until 1856. So, you know, six years after California had technically outlawed slavery. Um, but when she did, uh, she became a nurse and a midwife, and she used the money from uh, that medical practice to invest in L.A. real estate. And as, as L.A. began to grow really in the 1870s and 1880s, um, her real estate investments made her a really wealthy, influential woman. And she beca became one of the big landholders and philanthropists of this era. So that I mean, that's one one very rare, happy ending to the history of slavery in the American West. This is such an interesting uh, concept to think about, about the history of Los Angeles, um, because there's a lot of people trying to uh, articulate their own vision of the history of Los Angeles, but it, it, it feels like there's uh, another side to the story that, that few people know. Um, and I wanna use that to pivot to talking about uh, the article you wrote in the New Republic, which is initially what drew my attention to your research. Um, can you talk a little bit about the impetus behind that and, um, uh, this act, the article, I believe, came out before uh, it was in 2019. So before a lot of the movements to uh, remove Confederate uh, monuments and statues. So can you talk about uh, what impelled you or encouraged you to write the article and then um, the basis of it and then uh, the responses to it? <coughs> Sure. So that and don't worry, I'm going to I'm going to edit coughs. I, okay. you know, I um there was um, a few people I've interviewed recently that were pretty uh, anal about how much uh, how many ums I included of them. And uh, one of them uh, who's, you know, I'm not saying anything about who he is as a person, but H.W. Uh, Brands was very I, I, he's, he told me, I don't want to hear a single, um, I was like, okay, that's gonna be a little tough because you kind of use them as verbal fillers between words, but I'll do my best. So, but I do, I do go through and edit. So there won't be your, your, your illness will not be heard by anyone. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, that's why I wanted to wait until your question was done. Before. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But anyway, you can go into it. So yeah, um, the the backstory to my in interest in Confederate monuments in California, um, it grew out of the research from my book. Um, the book, you know, is all about the Southern presence in the West, um, and I was surprised to find that that presence lingered for a really long time. It lingered well into the 21st century. Um, California had more Confederate memorials and monuments and place names. I located more than a dozen of them than any other state outside the slave South itself. Um, and it had more chapters of the United Daughters of the Confederacy than any other former free state and actually more chapters than a lot of Southern states too. 
Um, so the article for the New Republic sort of asked, why was this? Um, and my investigation really began in, in 2016. And it started with a, a memorial to Confederate soldiers buried in Hollywood Forever Cemetery, right, you know, in the heart of Los Angeles. Um, and it was a memorial that not many people seemed to know anything about. It had just been there since 1925 without comment, sort of hiding in plain sight. And so I wrote an article for the LA Times asking, you know, how did this memorial get here and what can it tell us about California's history of slavery and its involvement in the Civil War? It was just a little 800 word article that I tried to condense as much of the book into as I could. Um, and a couple of days after that article appeared in the LA Times, uh, the Unite the Right rally took place uh, in Charlottesville, that white supremacist rally around the monument to Robert E. Lee there. Uh, and that kicked off <clears throat> a huge debate about the place of Confederate monuments in the American public landscape. And, and it drew attention to the article I had written and to this memorial in, in Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And within days, that memorial was uprooted and, and hauled out of there, um, uh, basically because people now knew it existed. Um, so I, I continued from there looking into the history of Confederate monuments in California and again, what they can tell us and why they, why they were erected when they were and why they, it remained in the state for so long. <clears throat> so in addition to that Hollywood uh, cemetery memorial, there were uh, memorials to Confederate soldiers in San Diego and Orange County. There were five uh, monuments or five markers to the Jefferson Davis Highway up and down the state. There were schools named for Robert E. Lee, redwood trees named for Robert E. Lee, a mountaintop named for Jefferson Davis. Uh, a series of foothills named for the CSS Alabama, the town of Confederate Corners. I'm, I'm probably missing some here, but you get the point. There were a whole lot of these place names and markers to the Confederacy all over California. And I don't think that that's not a that's not an aberration in California's history. In fact, it sort of aligns pretty well with this long history of slavery and um, and Confederate activity in the state. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that there's a lot of different, I mean, what you're talking about, about the removal of the Confederate monument in Los Angeles, there's a lot of different reasons we can remove things. You know, sometimes we can remove things because we don't want that history to be known. Um, and there's other great reasons for removing uh, Confederate monuments as well that are uh, more about justice and uh, people not living in environments where uh, slaveholders are glorified. Um, so what was the reaction uh, by the maybe scholarly community, the, uh, the larger community to your article uh, about California? I think there was some surprise that what are these Confederate monuments doing here in California? This seems so remote to the history of the Civil War and the Confederacy in particular. Um, and then there was, as as with this this entire debate, there were really strong and really split opinions. Um, actually, in that first op-ed I wrote for the LA Times, I went on the record saying, I don't think this particular memorial should be removed. I mean, I am no fan of equestrian statues of slaveholders and traders in our public places. But in this case, I thought this memorial could be a really good teaching tool 
especially for students in the LA area, take them to this memorial and teach them that, you know, California wasn't completely removed from the history of slavery and the Civil War, that it has this, you know, deep and really troubling connection to this history. Um, I thought it could be, a, you know, a teachable moment, um, but that monument is gone and actually most of the others are gone in California. Um, so I think really all we have left, and I'm, I'm not lamenting this fact, this is just a fact, all we have left is uh, a series of trees, redwood trees named for Robert E. Lee, but I think even on those the signage has been removed. So if you, if you go looking for the Confederate heritage of California, you're not going to find it. Yeah, what, um, do we know that were those just destroyed or uh, have they been moved to some kind of historical societies? Not that I know of. I think the the larger memorials have been moved into storage somewhere, but where exactly, I'm unsure. Um, Does this I mean, differ with different approaches in different parts of the country to Confederate monuments? I think it does. I think it's partly a matter of resources. I mean, you know, is are, are there museums that have the physical space to take on these memorials and to contextualize them and to teach them, um, you know, to teach them really carefully um, and really sensitively? Um, I'm not sure. I would I would actually like to see one of these memorials popped in a museum and, and this broader story told for visitors. Um, but uh, I'm, I don't think there are any plans in the works, at least that I know of. Yeah. Uh, before we get to book recommendations, let's kind of go to 20,000 feet here. Um, so when we're thinking about, and we've had a lot of discussion about how to think about the history and legacy of the California mission systems, for example. Um, uh, it's part of our curriculum. It's part of uh, how we teach the history of California. Uh, your subject matter is not really present in the curriculum at this point, at least in my world, in the K-12 world. And you know, for most average adults, if they take a U.S. history survey course at a community college or a university, they might not hear maybe more than a couple sentences about it. So if you um, were trying to kind of frame the big picture of the Confederate legacy in California, how would you like to see it taught? Oh, that's a good question. And a question I'm going to turn back on you in just a little bit. Okay. Um, but <clears throat> I would like to see it taught in maybe just a, a few discrete units. First, the history of slavery in California in the 1850s. It begins with the gold rush, with the importation of hundreds of African-American enslaved laborers, um, and with the enslavement of Native Americans, which in fact runs much deeper than that. Um, so that's one part of the story. Um, slavery in California, how it takes root, um, and how politicians in the state actually protected it. Um, and, and sort of gave safe haven for slaveholders. And then the history of the Civil War in the state. You know, why was there this Confederate movement, especially in the Southern part of California? How is that connected with the state's history of slavery? Um, and how does that sort of scramble our uh, preconceived notions about what California is as a you know, free state, progressive state, forward-looking state? Um, but I, I would love to hear from you, if you don't mind, how, how you think we can best integrate this history. I mean, do we need some do we need some sort of shorter, more readable histories? It's possible. I mean, I think we just you know, what I try to do in my classroom is just uh, change the perspective on 
historical moments, you know, if we're talking about the gold rush, how did different kinds of people experience that gold rush? And uh, not just talking about John Sutter, even though, you know, people need to know about John Sutter, uh, but talking about how indigenous people experienced the gold rush, how Mexican immigrants to California experienced the gold rush, talking about Joaquin Marietta, for example, who we just did an episode on, you know, trying to cover as best we can uh, the different stories. And that story will include enslaved people that were brought here uh, forcibly. Um, we did an episode on that where we uh, talked about someone that uh, was forced to migrate here with his uh, slave owner and then uh, tried to seek freedom, but then was ultimately pulled back into uh, chattel slavery in the South. And so just telling stories, I think, is one of the best ways to approach it. Obviously, we need some bigger picture perspectives so people can have an understanding of the size and scope of these things. But um, starting for me with a story, I think, is the best way, you know, because I think typically people think of gold miners with pans, um, but they don't think of enslaved people working for gold miners. Um, they don't think in those terms. Um, let's close by talking about books. Um, we mentioned a few uh, scholars earlier on who were influenced, uh, who influenced your thinking on these matters, but I want to kind of uh, take it a little broader and we can talk about popular histories as well. Um, are there some book recommendations uh, for people that are interested in the subject matter to go a little deeper? Yeah, for sure. Um, if you want to understand the history of unfree labor in California, really the place to start is Stacey Smith's book, Freedom's Frontier. Um, and it looks not only at African-American slavery, but indigenous servitude. Um, <clears throat> it looks at sexual exploitation, um, basically from the 1840s to the 1870s. Um, that's a really good introduction to the subject. Um, Andres Resendez's book, The Other Slavery, is about the long history of indigenous servitude and slavery from basically the beginning of European colonization through the end of the 19th century. That's um, a recent book, right? That just came out recently? Yeah. yeah, it came out maybe four years ago, and it gives a really good big picture look at a subject that was everybody knew a little bit about, but nobody had really put together, and he puts it together in a really compelling way. Um, I would also recommend... Uh, recent work by Steve Hahn, and I'm not just saying that because he was my PhD advisor, I'm saying that because he does a really good job of illustrating the connections between the South and the West and the grander stakes of this sort of mid-19th century moment in American history. Um, I would also recommend, I think it's coming out pretty soon. Well, really, I would recommend anything by Elliot West. He's just one of the nicest and smartest guys in the business. Um, and his, he, he's working on a really big book about the history of the West. Um, I think it's going to be out in not too long. Uh, that'll be a great resource. Wonderful recommendations. Um, Let's close by talking about kind of what's next for you. You mentioned uh, the research project you're working on now. Um, when, when can we expect to see that? And where can, we, uh, where can people find your book, uh, your most recent book? Oh, great. Well, they can find my most recent book, West of Slavery, wherever books are sold, basically. Um, Amazon or ideally through your, your local independent bookseller. Um, it's been out for about a year now. Um, the second book is, is about Biddy Mason, <clears throat> this woman who was brought enslaved into California. It's about her 3,000 mile journey from Georgia to Mississippi to Utah to California as an enslaved woman, but then her path to freedom as well, beginning 
1856 when she won her freedom and the biggest freedom suit I've ever seen or I know of uh, west of St. Louis. It freed her and it freed 13 other uh, African-American women and children. Um, and as I said, she went on to become uh, a fabulously wealthy and respected philanthropist and nurse and real estate entrepreneur. And, you know, LA as it was going from a one horse town to a real metropolis. All right. Last question for you as someone that now works in a different part of the world, uh, what do you miss most about California? Mm. I mean, it's hard not to say the weather. Sorry, yeah. the weather in my family, of course. Um, London is a little bit rainy and a little bit damp. Love it here. Uh, and I teach great students at Durham University. Um, but in mid-February, when it's like 38 and drizzling here, it's hard not to think of a nice 68-degree sunny day in, in Southern California. Yeah, that same day I'm sitting on a lawn chair sunbathing. So it is yeah. it is what it is, uh, you know, uh, different parts of the world, different weather, different climate, different food, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, California is it's unparalleled in some ways. Thank you for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Jordan. This was really fun. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of California. We'll see you next time.